and welcome to ESG Matters at Ashurst. I'm Anna-Marie Slott, Ashurst Global Sustainability ESG Partner, and this is our latest special episode. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Julie Hiragoyan, the CEO of UKGBC, the UK's leading NGO campaigning for a sustainable built environment. Um, this is our first in-person podcast recording at COP26, so it's very exciting for us all. Um, and thank you so much for joining me today, Julie. Maybe we could start off with just giving a little background around UKGBC and what you're doing and how you came to be at COP. Sure, no problem. And thanks for having me um, today. So UKGBC is one of many green building councils around the world. Um, there's about 70 of us. We're a charity. And above all, we're an industry network um, with a mission to radically improve the sustainability of the built environment. So that's across all types of built assets, all stages of the life cycle, life cycle of buildings um, and infrastructure. And um, so uh, climate change mitigation, resilience and adaptation, um, resource efficiency and circularity, um, nature and biodiversity, health and well-being, social value. These are all issues that are right at the core of our vision, um, which is a, a built environment that enables both people and planet to thrive. Hence why we're here at COP26. We really want to put the built environment front and first as a major source of solutions, I guess, to both the, the, the climate and the nature crisis. No, absolutely. And and a really interesting place to focus, right? We walk by our buildings every day. We live in them. Uh, we go to work uh, around them. And, you know, it's a huge area of emissions. I think yeah. people don't recognize both what's already there and everything that's going to be built yeah. um, going forward. So we've talked a lot in our podcasts about how the attitudes of people have changed in the last kind of 18 months, 24 months towards ESG and where that is sits on the agenda for people. Are you seeing that? Are you seeing that reflected here? Yeah, I mean, the last, I've, so I've been in um, sustainable real estate for 25 years, I'm showing my age now. And um, I have seen more change in the last 18 to 24 months than I have in the previous 23 years. Um, absolutely phenomenal sort of influx of interest and uh, kind of jumping on the you know bandwagon, hopefully not just for the um, show, um, but really because it's becoming quite mainstream. And I think, um, so, so a huge wave of interest um, right across the, the value chain, actually, not just investors and developers and property companies, but architects, engineers, um, you know, product manufacturers, agents, um, valuers, you know, there's, there's just this inexorable shift. I think it's fair to say that an enormous part of that has been around climate mitigation and this whole concept of net zero in particular. And now that in the UK we've legislated for net zero carbon by 2050 as an economy, every industry sector has to be scratching its head thinking, well, what does that mean for us? And as you rightly pointed out, Anne-Marie, um, this is a really this is probably the single largest source of emissions in one sector. And um, so we um We've done a, a latest footprinting of the UK's built environment and uh, buildings and infrastructure directly responsible for about 25% of our national carbon footprint. But if you add to that surface transport, which, of course, we use to get between buildings and, and in and around our urban centres and so on, it, it comes to 42%, which is the figure that people are most familiar with, that sort of 40% figure. That does include the transport industry, the transport sector as well. Um, but of course, that's a big part of our built environment. So it's absolutely massive. And I think the recognition that therefore the sector needs to step up, businesses um, you know, need to step up in order to address that footprint is 
is one of the reasons why we're seeing this this huge wave of um, appetite. And just to give you an illustrative example, our membership has gone from what was a fairly steady 400 or so members for quite a few years um, to, to suddenly we're 600 plus just in the last 18 months that's happened, um, actually through throughout the COVID pandemic. And I, so I also think the pandemic has raised awareness of the significance of these issues once they hit, um, you know, it's, it's a global systemic risk. You know, excellent. Um, it, 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 really funny because I was just thinking maybe in part because people have been in their buildings quite a lot during COVID. And so they're starting to think yeah. about their buildings a lot more and they, you know, thinking about their their real estate in a different way, right? Um, so that's that's fascinating change and shift. And you talk about the money going into um, the the built environment. I think investors and investors asking those questions is a huge shift that we've seen um, as well across this. So so we're here in, we're here in Glasgow today. Um, it's actually blue skies. It's been amazing. I must admit, I've been quite surprised. My body hasn't come out once. I know. I know. It's like a week and a half of beautiful weather. Um, and only people who live in the UK will understand why we have to talk about the weather. Um, but so, so what are you feeling or seeing out of COP? You know, there's a lot of people kind of all over the uh, the place in terms of they think it's it's coming out with good things. They think it's an emotion. They think it's all kind of a you know a, a light show that's being put on for the masses. What what are your feelings? It is very challenging to call that at this point in time. So I think you're quite right. In the first week, we saw almost a sort of blizzard of announcements. Um, there was a, clearly a staged announcement sort of every day. So we had the methane pledge and then we had, which I was really excited about. Um, and then we had a deforestation pact, uh, you know, to end deforestation over 100 countries signing up to that. That was also awesome. And I hope that that gains real traction. Um, and we've also seen um, the... Uh, analysis and the research from some of these global institutions um, coming out with uh, their evaluation of what the um, the nationally determined contributions that were submitted sort of ahead of COP all now mount up to. And this is really the sort of critical question, isn't it? Is you know, We came out of Paris with an agreement, which was fantastic, but all of the national determined contributions, which, by the way, is a bit jargony, um, is effectively the nation state commitments, their targets and what they've committed to do by when. Um, coming out of Paris, that was sort of three, three and a half degrees. It wasn't going to get us to where we needed to get to, but at least we had this agreement that and the agreement and the really significant part of COP26 is it's the first five year well it's actually six because it was postponed from COVID um, from last year but the first five-year COP since Paris, and every five years, the agreement said you ratchet up the nationally determined contributions. So the really big test for this COP's success is the extent to which those have been raised since Paris and the extent to which they get us closer to that 1.5 degree warming that we're trying to limit um, global temperature rise to. So there's been some fantastic analysis done by the International Energy Agency suggesting that, you know, we're actually closer to 1.8, 1.9 um, from the various kind of commitments that have been put forward by nation states ahead of COP, which was a great kind of read and, and a really fantastic piece of news. However, where the sort of debate comes in in terms of where we're at in reality is is the gap between ambition and action and there's also for every one of those stories there's um you know <clears throat> an equivalent story that says 
Um, for instance, the UNF, C or UNEP have come out saying um, actually the production, the amount that each country is investing in kind of fossil fuel production, for instance, would get us is, is just incompatible with that 1.5 degrees and, you know, increased investment in some of those fossil fuels or indeed subsidies. I mean, here we're, we're subsidizing heavily our, um, you know, our fossil fuel industries. So that's where the kind of that's where the debate sits. And then there's also been um, some uh, criticism and, and various other studies that the way in which we're reporting or nation states are reporting their emissions is fundamentally quite flawed. And the fact that they're, for example, they're allowed to um, include uh, land use offsets. So many of the, the countries are sort of almost halving their emissions on the basis that, well, we've got all this land and it must be absorbing all the CO2. There's just so much complexity to the topic and it is a really deeply scientific, mathematical kind of topic. And so, yeah, it, I'd say we're seeing some some really positive things and we are definitely seeing a shift in the right direction. But the, the real debate comes with, you know, is, is the action on the table enough? And right now it's definitely not. Yeah, 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 yeah. So actioning the ambition, I mean, that's really kind of like, key to it. And as you say, data, which is the non-romantic, non-headline uh, grabbing bit, but really where where you need to get to, right, to see what's there and what, what's actually happening and how much are you able to take out and, and how effective is any of that. Um, you know, the, the built environment, I think, in particular, is something that's high on everyone's list, not just for kind of this net zero and what we're happily now talking about beyond net zero, how do you get to a place where you start extracting? But also, in particular, I think the circular economy conversation, which is just starting to come into play, the built environment is huge in that because you know that you can you can build a beautiful new building that's you know bream excellent, but if you if you tear down an existing building that could have been retrofitted, like where are you net net on that equation? Um, are you having conversations like that with people? Is that granularity now? Yeah, I think I think that you're quite right that that level of debate. And the, and it's particularly the um, sort of existing versus new, and and you know not tearing down in particular has has been much more sort of up for discussion um, than it ever has before. I mean, if I'd tried to have that conversation five years ago, I'd have been laughed out of the room. Um, so there is that, you know, we don't yet have policies that sort of push in that direction necessarily, but there is definitely a, a, a sort of ongoing dialogue within the industry around, um, you know, we should retrofit first. Should we even get to the stage where we just don't ever tear something down unless it's actually, you know, genuinely dangerous or, or um, you know, it really needs to be to be demolished. So um, and and not just that, but also, you know, shouldn't we be building buildings with um, much more flexibility and adaptability in mind, much less strict uses and zoning and, you know, these sorts of things that can be transformed transformed into a different use or different asset type over time and shouldn't the materials and component parts be dismantleable reusable you know in the same way that we do for cars and phones and you know you can take them all apart and reuse different bits so we're really really quite behind as an industry i would say in the, in the built environment in in not having progressed that far down that journey but it, it is it is rising up the agenda for sure so i guess if you, you know, if you had like a, a, a wish list, right, from these conversations this week, uh, what 
what would be things that you'd you you'd love to see happen? Is it is it regulation that lets you shift zoning? Is it uh, you know we've talked a bit in other places with um, particularly procurement rules around you know who who wins the bids mm -hmm. from things? Do you do you change that so that innovation is more on the forefront as opposed to a cost analysis? Um, so what do you think if you could if you could have anything? Well, I'd probably say all of the above and be really greedy. <laughs> but um, no, there's different ways in which I could answer that. So, so thinking about COP26 itself, you know, there's a, there's clearly a geopolitical series of outcomes that we're all wanting to see. Um, one is clearly, you know, not just um, yes, absolutely agreements to limit warming to 1.5 and and commitments to, to get us closer to that, but also detailed action plans, nation by nation, sector by sector. Um, and that's when you get into the granularity of, you know, how are we actually going to get there? Um, and uh, not just by 2050, the really, really significant bit, I'm, I'm right at the top of my wish list, would be what's the plan in the next eight years? How are we going to halve emissions by 2030? Because that's very soon. And for an industry like ours, where the product takes ages to, you know, five, six, seven years to kind of come out of the ground from inception to to completion, um, that's that's one one lifetime, right? That's 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 nothing. So I think that twenty thirty threshold for me is crucial. Um, and then, of course, I would say this, but for built environment um, plans to be an absolutely integral part of those detailed nation by nation kind of action plan. But a positive on that note, and a stat I heard just to, today um, at an event I was earlier in the Blue Zone, you know, I think 180 plus MDCs, nationally determined contributions now reference buildings and the built environment and that's up from something like 80 back in Paris so that's really encouraging and I'd really want to see that ratcheting up again um, and I'd love to see the commitments you know that, that emerge from COP to say actually it's not ratcheting up your ambitions every five years it's every year and, and you know we, we have a COP every year so we should be re revisiting that year on year particularly as the science every year seems to be more frightening so um so those are big picture things um and kind of built environment related UK specific um you know tomorrow we will be launching as a UK GBC in the blue zone here at COP uh, uh, exactly that a UK whole life carbon roadmap for the built environment sector here um we know that we need these sectoral decarbonization sort of pathways um, and they they will need to add up um, to no more than this sort of Committee on Climate Change's final residual amount. I think it's 100 megatons of CO2 equivalent. But we all need to make sure that we're not taking too much of our share of that um, sector by sector. So we're launching that tomorrow. And clearly, it's based on a whole series of assumptions that we've put into a model, um, which the you know, the, the positive is that, and spoiler alert, but it says we can make it. We can actually get to a really small amount of residual emissions for the built environment sector in the UK. However, we won't make it unless we very urgently and really quickly introduce more policy, more regulation, um, more certainty around some of the big ticket items like homes and the energy use in our homes so a huge retrofit national retrofit strategy i mean absolutely top of my wish list um and embodied carbon 
you know, which is the carbon associated with the manufacture, transportation and assembly of construction products and materials on site and throughout the lifetime of the building. Um, we're not we're not even sort of remotely starting to you know regulate for that. So unless and until we do those things, we won't make that residual small amount by 2050. And they're you know, they're hard nuts to crack in some instances. They're, they're not easy. No, definitely. And and, and I think I, I wish also for the best for your wishes. Um, but I think, you know, embedding um, that new view and having that roadmap there for people to look at the pathway so that they understand the cost, they understand what they have to do. And so they can make informed market decisions, right, is, is really key to getting that transformation in terms of people delivering different types of solutions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely. Thank you so much for joining us. A really, a really great conversation. And uh, I'm glad you're here. I'm fin it's fantastic that you're launching um, tomorrow. I think industry efforts like that are so helpful for companies because companies just don't have the bandwidth to sit down and figure it out on their own. Right. And, and they do need help on really actioning what we're trying to get to. Um, so, so well done on your, on your, launch tomorrow. Hasn't even come yet. So congratulating you. And thanks for joining me today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it worthwhile. To learn more about the issues we've just covered, please visit ashurst.com forward slash podcasts. This 30 for net zero 30 episode is just one small part of our continuing podcast series, ESG Matters at Ashurst. Make sure you don't miss any of our future episodes by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're there, you can also listen to our other episodes and leave a rating or review. In the meantime, thanks again for listening and goodbye for now.